Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here with me. And it is great to have Bill Schaefer as my guest. He has a Master's of Arts in History of Design and Curatorial Studies from the New Schools Parsons School of Design. And the book he is here to discuss today is entitled The Scandalous Hamiltons a gilded grifter, a founding father's disgraced descendant, and a trial at the dawn of tabloid journalism. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Eric. Yes, certainly. So this is your first book. It is indeed. Um, uh, I've written some short form pieces, uh, design focus kind of short essays, but this is my first full-length book. How was the process as a uh, first-time author? It was pretty interesting. I have to say the um, the way I, I got to the book is I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I do uh, historical design and architectural research for other authors, for design consultancies, things like that. And I was walking... Um, I was actually parking my car one evening in a very cold January evening. I found a parking spot at the corner of 76th Street and Riverside Drive. And uh, when I got out of the car, I was in front of what I came to learn was the Hamilton Fountain. Uh, it struck me as a very elegant, very beautiful fountain. And I thought this, has got, this looks like something you would see at Grand Central Terminal. Because I do a lot of, you know, historical architectural research, I'm familiar with a lot of uh, architects that worked in New York, and I looked at the Parks Department plaque that was mounted on a lamppost, and it said the fountain was designed by Warren and Wetmore. Uh, It was named for Robert Ray Hamilton, great-grandson of Alexander Hamilton, etc., etc., and that the fountain was designed by Warren and Wetmore. And as I was walking back to my uh, to my building, I was thinking, why is Warren and Wetmore, 
who were the architects of Grand Central Terminal and one of the most prominent, uh, distinguished architectural firms in, in the country, really, in the beginning of the 20th century. I thought, why are they doing this obscure little sort of project, this fountain in this this little niche of uh, Riverside Park? And so I just I just Googled it out of out of curiosity. And when I did, I started getting these hits about, you know, this scandal that Robert Ray Hamilton was involved in. You know, there were basically blog pieces uh, that various people had written, some of them more accurate than others, none of them really consistent with each other. And so I wanted to dig a little further. And I thought, you know, surely there must be a book uh, about this fountain and this story of Robert Ray Hamilton somewhere. And when I found out there wasn't, I took it upon myself to, to try to write it. So that that was the genesis of it. And two years of research later and another year of writing and rewriting and pitching and et cetera, et cetera, I, uh, I found a publisher for it. So That's great, yeah. So you've, you've already talked a bit about Robert Ray Hamilton. He was a descendant of Alexander Hamilton, who I am going to assume my very historically literate audience is comfortably familiar with. But even though he had died, of course, in that infamous duel uh, decades earlier, the Hamilton family still carried a lot of weight, right, in the 1880s. You're correct. In, in fact, I write in the book that, in the introduction, that the Hamilton name then was, uh, I liken it as akin to the Kennedy name today. So in 1889, where the story really begins, that's 85 years after the duel in Weehawken between Hamilton and Burr. But there were a number of descendants of Alexander Hamilton, a lot of them in New York, they were uh, philanthropists. They were prominent. They were uh, prominent uh, politically, socially, in finance in New York. So their name was was a known entity and and associated with good deeds and good works and the highest reaches of New York society. So there were it wasn't uncommon to see the Hamilton name in the paper in the newspaper what made this stand out and what made it such a curiosity at first and then a full-blown sort of celebrity scandal is Robert Ray Hamilton's name attached, got attached to something that was uh, not, <laughs> was the opposite of everything that the Hamiltons were like to be known for. He was involved in a crime um, or his wife was, and it was, uh, as I say, it, it, became a celebrity scandal with the only outlet at that time being the daily newspaper. Right, right. So besides Robert Ray Hamilton, the other major character in your book is Eva Hamilton, who besides Hamilton also went by man, steel, brill. Uh, she had a, a number of last names through sure. the course of her life. <laughs> um, some of those last names were legitimate and some weren't. One of the things that, and I'll talk a little bit more about her in a second, but one of the things that really struck me in kind of assembling the material for the book is, you know, at that time there were no social security numbers. There weren't photo IDs. There weren't background checks. There was, 
There was no way of verifying anybody. You could show up in a town, say you're, you know, John Smith, and you would be believed until, you know, you gave people reason to, to think otherwise. So they're changing names and sort of tweaking identities. And uh, it was more commonplace than I would have thought. Uh, it's generally that uh, was done by people who, you know, were running afoul of the law or potentially running afoul of the law. But it was it was pretty easy to do. And Eva kind of fell into that category. Re- Eva was the was the opposite of Ray in that Ray was born into a life of privilege. He didn't lack for anything uh, growing up. You know, he went to Columbia University, Columbia Law School. All of his friends were uh, children of very wealthy and connected people. And he kind of existed in that sort of upper stratosphere of, of, of New York privilege. Eva, by contrast, uh, she grew up in the backwoods of Northeast Pennsylvania. Uh, at that time, it was coal country. Um, the industrialization of America was on full display there. Railroads were being built to haul coal out of the country to fire up, you know, bigger and uh, more complicated machines to manufacture more uh, complicated goods. And her father was a uh, she was the youngest of six children. Her father was a, an itinerant woodcutter. They, the men who would cut the forest uh, for uh, train tracks to be laid. He was an alcoholic. Eva grew up basically going from town to town. And, you know, the little village, they finally sort of settled in. The consensus was that she wasn't going to be bright. And so whereas Ray grew up with everything, Eva grew up with nothing. And and it's one of the sort of interesting content, uh, contrasts to me uh, in the story is that this is smack dab in the middle of the Gilded Age. And a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a real uh, contrast in the Gilded Age between the haves and have-nots. There were people making spectacular amounts of money, accumulating massive amount of wealth, displaying their wealth in some cases, quite ostentatiously. And on the other side, you know, were the people who were doing the labor for the robber barons and the industrialists, you know, um, they were in service to the the newly found wealth. And so that that story plays out in, in lots of different ways. Um, and in the book, it really comes together in the, in the lives of Ray and Eva. Um, it's, I've been talking to you know people in various forums about about this book, and one of the things that comes up with Eva is that you know I don't want to give everything away in the book, but um, Eva's not a not a great person. She uh, you know she does any number of things to to make you as a reader go wow she is she is not good. However. There's a certain amount of people are commenting to me, and, and I understand it. There's also a certain amount of empathy that some people have with her because, again, she's one of these people who basically has has been given nothing in life. And for a woman, it was hard enough for a man at that time, but for a woman, there weren't many options for how you could 
advance or better your your stature when you come from such humble beginnings, you don't have much of an education. And so on on one hand she was she was I think like many people that were doing what they felt they needed to do to get by. The, there wasn't much of a moral or legal equation about it. It's, it was, this is what I need to do. And Eva certainly fell into that category. And, and she, she wasn't alone. There were a lot of people in that same category. So from the point when Eva escapes her fragile living situation, where does she go? What does she do? She, um, there, there weren't many options available to her. Uh, basically, a traveling salesman who, who came through her town was sort of beguiled uh, by her. She had a presence that, that, you know, men were attracted to her. You know, she was physically attractive, but more than that, she had a way that, that men found endearing or however you want to describe it. And so this salesman took her to upstate New York and, as I write, took her virtue and then abandoned her three days later. This is when she was 15 uh, years old. And the only thing that she um, kind of felt that she could do was to fall into the sex trade. So she um, moved around Elmira, New York, uh, came back down to around Elmira, New York, and began uh, began as a sex worker, which she did until a client uh, who – Kept demanding favors uh, from her in, turn, in in exchange for keeping her out of trouble. Pushed too far, and Eva got a hold of a gun and tried to shoot him. Blew his ear off, and um, was wanted for attempted murder. So she slinked back home, and then eventually, about a year or two later, made her way to New York City, which was a couple hours by train away. So. She started, she became a prostitute at a very young age. And in fact, that's how Ray, her and Ray met. Um, it wasn't uncommon at that time for men of Ray's stature who, you know, made a lot of money in lower Manhattan, stopped by their private club after the uh, workday was over, the Union League or the University Club or something, and have dinner and drinks with their friends and stop at what was sometimes called a body house on their way home. And that's where he and Eva met and began their relationship in 1885. And like men of similar status and wealth, Ray kept this relationship quiet as long as he could. But but suddenly he agrees to marry her. Their relationship was, uh, I would describe it as one of convenience kind of on both of their parts. Ray was a New York State Assemblyman and so he spent a lot of his time in Albany, New York, a couple hours, a uh, hundred miles or so north of New York City. And he generally was there during the week, and he also practiced law in Albany uh, and would only return to New York on the weekends. And when he did, he would see Eva. And he gave Eva, you know, whatever money she needed, bought her clothes, bought her jewelry. So it kind of worked for both of them in this sort of part-time weekend relationship for a number of years. Uh, Eva eventually decided she wanted to become Mrs. Robert Ray Hamilton, uh, in part because should anything happen to Ray, 
she would be, as his wife, entitled to at least one third of his estate, uh, regardless of if she, if a woman was in a man's will or not. As a wife, you had what was called a dower right in New York. It was um, one third of a man's estate. So she concocted a plan to convince Ray that she was pregnant with his child and that he should marry her. And she produced a baby that she told Ray was her, was his. That baby was in fact purchased at a um, at an illegal orphanage, which was which were called at that time baby farms. There were there were legal orphanages, um, generally run by either a government or a religious institution. But there was a certain amount of registration and paperwork that needed to be done to. Uh, hand your baby over to an orphanage for women who didn't want to do that, women or girls um, who found themselves in a situation where either nobody could know or they couldn't keep their baby for whatever reason. You could turn your babies over to uh, midwives who took in children, and if they were pink-cheeked and, and you know looked like they were healthy, happy babies, those midwives would then sell them for uh, the going rate was $5, no questions asked. Unfortunately, and this was actually the, the roughest part of the research for me, is kind of learning more about baby farming, as it was called, was that babies who might have a physical deformity or weren't, or, or weren't deemed kind of desirable or who who could be who could be potentially sold those babies were became victim of infanticide they were um sometimes smothered sometimes drowned left basically to die and they were baby farms were more prevalent than you might think in new york there were well in manhattan there was about rumored to be about 20 of them in brooklyn another 25 or so uh but they were in every kind of a city of any particular size at the time. So that baby farming story in the book, it's actually more complicated than that, but I'm, I'm, I'll leave that for now. So that is how uh, once Ray realized that he had a child or he was led to believe he had a child, he agreed to marry her. So after basically about four years of their relationship on uh, January 7th of 1889, they took a ferry to um, Patterson, New Jersey, basically across the river from Lower Manhattan, and were married. Um, none of their family or any of their friends accompanied them uh, to their wedding. In fact, the minister that married them procured his wife and his mother-in-law as the two witnesses uh, that signed their uh, marriage certificate. So it wasn't until later that his family and her family and various friends became aware that they were even married, much less had a child. Right, yeah. You write that they traveled to California for a time, primarily because Ray wanted to postpone telling his family about the marriage. Uh, yeah, yeah there, was, there was probably two reasons. He was a big real estate developer, and the area around San Diego had been opened up to, to railroad traffic. The trains had started coming there in the 1880s. And so all of a sudden, Southern California real estate around San Diego became 
very desirable property. That was one reason. And then the other reason was to kind of have Eva and his baby sort of isolated from everyone he knew. And that way he could return east to say, oh, look, I met a woman in California. We got married and here's our child. So, you know, it's <laughs> that that's pretty much the way their marriage started those first four months in San Diego. And accompanying them on their trip was their wet nurse, a woman named Mary Ann Donnelly. Mary Ann Donnelly. She was a, you know, a lot of people of, of means at that time hired wet, nurse, wet nurses. Wet nurses were uh, generally came from sort of, I'll say, lower classes than the people that hired them. Many of them came from pretty rough and tumble backgrounds themselves. Marianne Donnelly was fit in that category. She was also a drinker, which was also not uncommon for uh, nurses at that time. So uh, wet nurses. So they, um, uh, yeah, they hired Marianne Donnelly, who accompanied them to San Diego. And while they were there, Eva didn't really like it there. Uh, she lost a lot of weight, about 40 or 50 pounds in a matter of a couple of months. Eva started drinking more than she had previously. And so they took a decision kind of midsummer to return east to, to take up residence back in New York and thought they would stop in Atlantic City for about oh, a month or so, the month of August, basically, uh, for a beach holiday before they return to the city. We will be back in a moment. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. 
Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So their marital troubles really heated up when they started living together. They'd stayed separate up to this point, for the most part. And now that they were together 24-7, the arguing began and continued. And it wasn't long before they started talking about divorce. That's correct. As as you said, I mean, it was basically a part-time uh, relationship for four years. And after they got married in January and were with each other 24-7, Eva had more demands for more clothes, more jewelry, more of the finer things in life that, you know, she was just learning about. And Ray, I think, kind of got sick of it. I don't have anything in his in his own hand that says that. But clearly, eight months into the relationship, the morning they were due to leave it, they, were, they stopped in Atlantic City. The morning they were due to uh, leave Atlantic City, he said, or the night before, actually, he said, you know, I, I want a separation. Uh, I'm willing to pay you, Eva, $5,000 a year. And, of course, I'll provide for our child and whatever her needs are. But basically, I want out of the marriage. And Eva, who had fought long and hard to become Mrs. Robert Ray Hamilton, basically said, hell no. And um, so a pretty substantial argument broke out about it. It was during this time, too, right, that a couple of characters entered Ray and Eva's social circle, uh, Anna Swinton and Josh Mann. How were they connected to the couple? So Josh Mann was um, a single gentleman about Eva's age. Anna Swinton was his mother. Anna Swinton uh, had been married twice, was a, twice a widower, and she had her husband's uh, estates that she, which were not not substantial, which she had lived on. But she had taken work as a seamstress to kind of help ends make ends meet. Eva met her and her son Josh a couple of years before, and Josh. How will I say this without without giving away too much? Uh, Josh and Eva were quite friendly with each other. Uh, Josh was not uh, the brightest guy uh, in the first place. He'd also been kicked in the head by a horse and so might have had some mental problems. He was also a big drinker. Him and Eva drank a lot together, but Eva had some sympathy for him and his kind of station in life. And so Josh and Anna and Eva kind of were spent a lot of time together. And when Eva was returning from San Diego, she reached out to Mrs. Swinton, who was living in New York, and said, could you come meet me in Atlantic City? because uh, I've lost about 40 or 50 pounds and all of my clothes need need to be altered. And so 
that was the given reason why they came down to Atlantic City and kind of hung around in a hotel adjacent or or around the corner from the Hamiltons. But it was also for Eva and Josh to kind of be close to each other as well. It was around this time, too, that the wet nurse, Marianne Donnelly, started uh, having suspicions that... Well, a, a couple of times while they were in Atlantic City, Ray had to come back for day or overnight trips. You know, it's only about an hour and a half or so on the train. Uh, he would have to come back to New York for business. And whenever he went to New York, Josh was hanging around Eva. And it had been that way actually before they had left for San Diego. So it was um, um, Mrs. Donnelly kind of started putting two and two together and realizing that that in her mind, which ended up being true, that uh, Josh and Eva were more than friends. And so when Ray and Eva started having their argument the morning they left, at 7 a.m. as they were packing and arguing, Eva uh, directed Marianne Donnelly to go out and uh, buy a bottle of whiskey, which she did. She didn't return for a couple of more hours because she had started drinking the whiskey with, as it turns out, Josh Mann. So it was all a bit, all a bit tawdry, really. And so when she came in, uh, Eva wanted to know why she was so late returning, why the whiskey bottle was uh, already kind of a third empty, and and Marianne Donnelly threatened to tell Ray everything she suspected about. Uh, Josh. Uh, Eva was incensed. Ray told Mrs. Donnelly, go back to your room. They had separate rooms in this cottage. But the drinking on both of their parts continued. And finally, about lunchtime, Eva and Mrs. Donnelly's argument expanded into a a physical fight, uh, grabbing each other by the hair, sticking their fingers in each other's mouths. And Uh, At some point, Eva uh, grabbed a hunting knife out of Ray's trunk and um, wheeled around and stabbed Marianne Donnelly. And that's really what, this is all kind of in chapter one, everything we've been talking about. And this is then what kicks off the rest of the book, because this happened basically at lunchtime on Monday, August 26th. By that evening, reporters had filled Atlantic City from New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, every kind of city around, smaller um, cities in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, because, uh, you know, a Hamilton had gotten involved with in a scandal of apparently a fairly serious magnitude. And by the next morning, uh, headlines across the country talked about the plight of Robert Ray Hamilton and his villainous wife, and et cetera, et cetera. And it became, it became uh, sort of tabloid reading for the next uh, six weeks while Eva went on trial and um, uh, basically ruined Ray's reputation. You know what's interesting? Uh, I mean, this relationship between Marianne Donnelly and Eva. I mean, I can only imagine that if Robert Ray Hamilton had married someone who was his social peer, 
Marianne would never have dared attack her. But she knew, right, that, that she and Eva were on the same level, really. And that familiarity probably helped fuel this fire. I, uh, you know, that's an excellent point. And uh, I, think, uh, I think you're 100% right about it. Ray had a, had a younger brother, uh, Skylar Hamilton Jr., who did marry properly. You know, he ended up having his own issues, which I talk about in the book. But his first wife was the daughter of a descendants of the Van Rensselaer and the Van Wick families in New York, the Gardner families, the oldest, most established families. Uh, her father was a Supreme Court judge in California, California's the state Supreme Court judge. She came from that upper echelon, like Skyler Jr., of New York society. And if Ray would have married someone like her, I, it would have played out very, very differently. I, I think you're, you're spot on with that observation. I have to mention, because I, I found it humorous, uh, Marianne Donnelly, who doesn't die, by the way, um, but, but she gets her, her 15 minutes of fame, right? And, and she milks it for all it's worth. <laughs> there were, um, there were things, places in New York called dime museums. They weren't unique to New York, but they were basically, they were called dime museums, but basically what they were, were freak shows. Um, and they, you know, sadly featured a lot of people with physical deformities and weird conditions and, you know, things that had happened to them. But they also, um, employed people who had a certain amount of notoriety. So Marianne Donnelly appeared at the Globe Museum on the Bowery in New York, showing the the dress and petticoat, the slashes in it uh, from the knife that Eva stabbed her with, and uh, had a the whiskey bottle that they drank from uh, that morning on the uh, on the table next to her. And the idle and curious could come in and and take a look, and they could ask her questions. And she admitted that she was a little bit embarrassed by it, but they were paying her excellent money, $75 a week or something. might have even been more than that. I can't remember offhand. And she said, you know, what choice do I have? It's not like I'm going to be able to be employed as a baby nurse again after all having my name splashed in the newspaper all this time. But she definitely took advantage of her 15 minutes of fame, no doubt. So going back to what you said before about Eva's family not believing she was very bright, uh, that's really not the case. I mean, she's smart. She, she's clever. And she's defiant. And when she's thrown into jail, she is not having it at all. Right. Um, Right. She's like throwing food against the walls. <laughs> you know, she um, um, she might not have been book smart um, necessarily, but she was indeed very clever and could figure out what she had to negotiate to get through life. And so when she was uh, sentenced in Mays Landing, New Jersey, it's a small town about 20 miles inland from the Atlantic County uh, seat. Uh, she had to spend two weeks in jail before she left for the big prison in, in uh, state prison in Trenton. She befriended the sheriff's wife, 
uh, the sheriff's house was right next door to the jail. And the sheriff's wife took a liking to her and let her stay in their third floor sort of attic guest room uh, until she had to go off to jail. So for the two weeks between her conviction and sentencing, you know, she was eat, as she was eating dinner each night with the family. She wasn't really incarcerated. What's what a matter of uh, a trivial matter uh, there is that the the sheriff was a gentleman named Smith Johnson, and he had uh, two young boys at that time. One of them uh, grew up to be Nucky Johnson, who was the Prohibition kingpin in Atlantic City. If you ever if any of your listeners ever watched uh, the series Boardwalk Empire, which right. uh, which centers on a guy named Nucky Thompson, that's that's actually Nucky Johnson, and and he was five years old or so when uh, Eva was living in his house with him and his younger brother. So she, you know, she was sentenced to prison. She figured out what the uh, system was to get a pardon and how much you had to pay because it was really a pay-for-play scenario at that time. So all of those things, she figured out what you would need to do to get by and then would do it. And Ray, at this point, is sticking by her, at least outwardly. But rumors start circulating. Uh, He starts getting mysterious notes suggesting that there is... uh, something uh, rotten in the state of Denmark (laughs) here. (laughs) Uh, And soon into this story enters a character that we've covered quite a bit on this show, arguably the most famous detective in American history, Thomas Burns, right? Yep. So Ray was uh, uh, very well connected uh, with prominent attorneys and sort of leading figures in New York, as I mentioned earlier. And when the stabbing happened, Ray, Ray was let out on a bond, uh, you know, basically immediately. Eva was bound over for trial. But three of Ray's friends in New York thought, we, you know, they always had their suspicions about her and what his relationship was with her. And so uh, they... They thought we got to get to the bottom of who this woman is, so they went to Tommy Burns, and you know I'm I'm he's one of uh, my favorite characters in the book just because he is a character. It was said that six hoodlums couldn't plan a heist in New York without two of them being in Tommy's pocket. It worked sort of both sides of the fence. He could uh, he was incredibly wealthy from gratuities from Wall Street businessmen, as he described them. And so Ray's three friends went to Tommy Burns to say, can you find out anything about Eva? And within basically 24 hours, about 36 hours, uh, he added on record that uh, her and Josh were basically in a common law relationship in uh, marriage in Elmira, New York, that Beatrice, who was Ray and Eva's daughter, Beatrice had been purchased at a baby farm, and that the whole thing, the whole marriage thing was a complete scam. You know, Eva was in jail in Atlantic City. Anna and Josh had returned back to New York 
And so he had them tailed, had them arrested. And, you know, as your, as your listeners will know, because Tommy was able to, you know, perfect the art of the third degree, you know, 24 hours after he had them behind bars, they spilled and told him everything. And when, uh, as I write in the book, the uh, New York police headquarters was on Mulberry street at the time across the street was a clubhouse where all the reporters on the city and crime beats hung out. And if word passed across the street that Tommy Burns had a story and wanted to, uh, uh, see the reporters. I mean, they just dropped everything they were doing and fought themselves to get through the door of the police station to gather around his desk and hear the story. And that's exactly what, what happened here with Ray and Eva. So Tommy's the one who broke it. Right, right. So Anna makes a pretty sensational uh, confession. Lots of juicy details. And, you know, we can save some of those for the readers. But there is something I do really want to ask you about that relates to what Anna tells police. You've already talked some about the baby farming, but, but more information is revealed, and it's absolutely horrifying. Um, right. So baby Beatrice was not the only baby procured to fool Ray. Right. Beatrice was, was actually baby number four. Correct. In a whole that is series correct. of babies. So when Ray had announced that he was that, or sorry, when Eva announced that she was pregnant with Ray's child, Ray was had decided not to run for re-election, so he was going to be in Albany basically kind of for a six-month period, which coincided with Eva's, quote, pregnancy. And so he saw her very infrequently as she began to show. And for the last three months, basically her last trimester, a woman at that time had what was typically, it was called a laying-in period, you basically took the last sort of two to three months of your pregnancy as uh, as basically bed rest. You could do that in a hospital, but uh, more often than not, you would do it in the home of a relative, your mother or an aunt, somebody like that. So Eva announced to Ray for the last few months of 1888 for that for the fall. I'll be up in Elmira for my laying in period. I'll be back sometime between, you know, around Christmas and New Year's. And when I come back, I'll have your child. Um, so the, the first baby they bought, actually, her and Josh Mann, were, was in Elmira. And, you know, Eva had never had a child. She didn't know how to care for a baby. She did, she couldn't lactate. And so the baby that they purchased in Elmira actually died before um, or right when they, they got to New York with it. The, the baby was alive for just several days. Um, they called an undertaker and that, that baby was buried. They bought a, a second baby. Uh, that baby was sickly. Uh, that baby died as well. And then the third baby that they purchased, they she sent actually Anna Swinton out to buy baby number three. And when she came back with baby number three, Eva exploded because baby number three didn't look anything like baby number two. 
and Ray had already seen baby number two. So, you know, he obviously would put two and two together. So that baby had to be returned. And then Eva found baby number four, who looked as close as she thought she could to baby number two. So there's a lot of details in there about how that kind of all went down, but that's the gist of it. And, you know, it's, it's sad. They, that, that illegal baby trade, that, that wasn't that uncommon, you know, that uh, a baby that, that might be purchased illegally just is not healthy enough to survive. And certainly if you're a, a new mother who has no clue about raising a child, you know, that compounds the problem. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah. And baby number four, uh, Beatrice, Eva, you you write was was pretty satisfied with with Beatrice generally um, passing off as baby number two, but she had a problem with Beatrice's ears, right? Yeah, you know, um, she thought the ears were too big, and that because of these sort of outsized ears, you know, said that Eva would never be able to you know love the child completely. But quite honestly, she was. I don't think the ears really had much to do with that because I, that child was just a vehicle for Eva to have access to raise money, basically. Um, so, yeah. But the shape of, of her ears would ultimately be used as a means of identification yeah, by correct. witnesses. Correct. They, um, they tracked down the midwife who sold the baby and was able to identify it as... Uh, able to identify Eva as the woman who purchased it. And so that just helped cement the case against her. But, you know, that that actually never went to a, a trial, but it was used in a subsequent civil action. There was a – Eva got involved in a uh, – there was a criminal action, which is kind of in the beginning of the book or the first – sort of 25 to 30% of the book. And then later there is a civil action, a protracted civil action that caused the same level of front page headlines as the uh, criminal uh, proceedings. So that info came out in the civil uh, action. Back after these brief messages. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. 
We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. And we have returned once more. So it was fun to read about Thomas Burns. And for me, it's just as entertaining, even more so when I see Nellie Bly's name mentioned in a story. Yeah. We've talked about her over and over again on the show as well. And she makes an appearance. Sure. Well, you know, your listeners, if you've discussed her, know that Nellie Bly basically is credited with Invest, uh, inventing investigative, undercover investigative journalism. Uh, she did an eight-part series called uh, "Inside the Inside the Madhouse," uh, documenting conditions at a New York City Blackwell uh, Island asylum. And you know, she was uh, she had a way of you know she really wanted to give voice to the people to the voiceless, and in this case. You know, a lot of people were on the side of, of Robert Ray Hamilton when it came to the court of public opinion and newspaper coverage. And, you know, the Hamilton family did a great job of trying to manipulate the coverage and to raise favor and paint Eva as negatively as they could. And, you know, Nellie Bly saw this and saw that the Hamilton side had gotten, was in the paper virtually every day, but nobody really heard much about Eva's side of the story. So Eva, Nellie did not have an appointment. She took it upon herself to go to Trenton State Prison, talk to the matron who ran the women's side of it, talked her way into the prison uh, that, you know, she was here for an interview with Eva Hamilton, blah, blah, blah. Uh, She was given access Eva Hamilton was introduced to her, and Nellie Bly basically said, you tell me your story, and I will I'll record it faithfully, and that's what I'll report. And she basically gave uh, Eva carte blanche to say whatever she wanted to uh, about the situation. Uh, and then that was printed in the New York World, which is the paper owned by Joseph Pulitzer that, that Nellie Bly worked for. So... And of course, Eva's version of events, like everything with her always, was 
you know, basically a maddening mixture of fact and fiction. There were some things that were true, some things that were kind of true, and some things that were just flat out lies. But that was Eva, you know, she, Eva was a storyteller. And as I write in the book, to her, facts were, facts were fungible, you know, it, it's whatever you need to, part of the story you need to tell to advance your case and whatever the situation was, that's, that's the story you told. So she told a, she told a, a long one and, and a complicated one to Nellie Bly. So yeah, she made it and Nellie Bly made it into the book as well. So things don't go well for Eva in her criminal trial. And Ray kind of separates himself from it all. He moves out west. Yeah, so Ray was a an avid outdoorsman, big hunter, big fisherman, and had been that way uh, all of his life when he graduated from uh, law school before he started practicing law. He took a long trip out west by himself. He was a member of a place called the Monroe Marsh Club, which was a duck hunting club in Monroe, Michigan, be sort of between Toledo and Detroit on the shores of, of Lake Mich- of um, the River Raisin. And he would go out there every fall to go duck hunting. So he, he just loved being outdoors. And after Eva was convicted, Ray's reputation was was really in tatters. It was it was not great, and he decided I'm going to go someplace out west and and basically start anew. And he chose Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And if any of your listeners have spent much time there, breathtakingly beautiful. But at that time, two more kind of areas of appeal to Ray were the fact that. The nearest train station was in what is now basically Idaho Falls. And in Jackson Hole, there were no daily newspapers. He didn't have to wake up every morning and see his name on the front page, somehow tied into this woman that he had married. And so not only did it give him a chance to appreciate the great outdoors, but you know, also at that time, more railroads, even though they weren't coming directly to Jackson Hole, there was a lot more train traffic out west from the east. And just as, you know, today, you know, a bunch of Wall Street guys might to get together and do, you know, want to do a buddy's trip to go fishing or hunting or doing something out west. They did that then, too. It was the same thing. And there were Jackson, the town of Jackson hadn't even been. Uh, formed into a town yet uh, in 1890. So it was a very rough and tumble place. It was really only the hardiest of the hardy uh, spent the winter in the valley in Jackson Hole. Uh, the conditions were so foreboding. But Ray arrived in June and he wanted to, he had the idea to build a hunting lodge to service basically these Wall Street guys who had started coming out there. And um, the place that he was a member of in Michigan, the Monroe Marsh Club, was a pretty grand uh, and moneyed hunting club. And he, he sort of had that as a model for what he wanted to build in Jackson Hole. He wasn't there very long, just a matter of a couple of weeks, where he met another Easterner who had kind of fallen on bad times, a guy named John Dudley Sargent. 
who was from the Sargent family in Maine and Massachusetts, basically old money uh, up in those parts in the Northeast. He was a distant cousin to John Singer Sargent, the painter. And John Dudley Sargent had moved out west, first on his own, kind of in the 18, around the beginning of 1880. But by the late 1880s, had moved his family, which had, you know, his wife and three, four children uh, by the time Ray was there. And he homesteaded a piece of land. And again, uh, it makes more sense if you know Jackson Hole, but on the east side of Jackson Lake is Coulter Bay. And uh, John Sargent homesteaded a piece of property basically on Coulter Bay, which is arguably the most spectacular view of the Tetons um, that there is and across Jackson Lake. And Ray met him, saw his property, and figured out that John Sargent kind of had the same idea. He did not kind of. They had the same idea. And so they decided to go into business together to build a lodge called Merrymere. Now, you have to imagine lodges at that time or cabins in Jackson Hole. You know, if a cabin measured 12 feet by 12 feet, that was a pretty good-sized cabin. And this was going to be 70 feet long, 22 feet deep, you know, have a sitting room, four bedrooms, an indoor kitchen, an outdoor kitchen, a study, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so they started construction on it. Now, Ray being a real estate developer, uh, he's used to building things, but there it was really difficult circumstances. There were no sawmills around, so timbers were pulled by ox to the job site, and they hired Swedish carpenters from uh, around Idaho Falls, who lived on the site, and they set up whipsaw stands, which were stands to, you know, hew these logs into uh, pieces that could be built into cabins. Any uh, stones for the heart had to be pulled out of the river and, again, dragged to the job site by by ox, by teams of oxen. It was, you know, it was, it was backbreaking work, but that work began in, Ray arrived in June of 1890, and by August, they had a, a couple of rooms up so that uh, Sergeant and his family were living in kind of one larger room, and Ray was living in, a, in the back of the lodge, and Ray was living in a smaller one in the front. I, I guess I, I should say then that, that Mary Mirror was partially constructed by the end of August, and Ray had been working so hard on managing the construction of this lodge that he had not had time to do what he really loved to do, which was to hunt. He'd gotten a little fishing in, uh, but he hadn't really gotten any hunting in. And by the end of the August, uh, you know, some of the animals start to come down from the higher elevations as the weather starts to change, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Ray ended up going out hunting uh, alone, uh, John Sargent and some of the workers at the camp, Sar Sargent's wife said, don't do it. You're not familiar enough with the territory. Ray said not to worry. He knew what he was doing. And he said he would be gone for three days. At the end of those three days, he, he had not returned. And Sargent gave it another couple of days and then started sending out search parties 
And uh, there's a mountain, if, again, for your listeners who are familiar with the area, Signal Mountain, um, which is part of uh, Grand Teton uh, National Park. Signal Mountain was, um, uh, it's away a little bit from the, from the Teton Range itself. It's on the other side of Jackson Lake. And at that time, it was unnamed. And as these search parties fanned out to try to find Ray, they were directed by John Sargent. You know, anybody who finds him, dead or alive, get as high as you can on this unnamed mountain and light a fire so that we know that he's been located. And so that name was, the name given to it was Signal Mountain, and that's the name that still exists today. So it got its name as as a result of the search for Ray, and Ray was indeed found, uh, and the circumstances were unfortunate. Um, An accident had occurred, and uh, Ray was dead. So a a couple of, of final questions. It looked like an accident, but some believe that there was foul play involved in Ray's death. Uh, what do you think about that? And also, what eventually happened to Ray's money? So, um, in terms of the, the your first question, there were a lot of rumors. Um, foul play was definitely in the air, in the newspapers. Uh, uh, it was written about the potential that it was foul play. Some people uh, even paint, pointed their fingers at John Sargent. John Sargent has quite a history that I, uh, I go through in the book, but some people even thought that Ray had faked his own death to get out of, you know, his situation with Eva, and he had run off to Mexico or California or someplace else uh, and changed his identity. There were all kinds of rumors, uh, and I put them all to rest uh, in the book, which I'll leave that one there. And the second one is what happens to Ray's money is basically when he found out what Eva was had been up to with Josh and Mrs. Swinton, he cut her out of his will. So when his will was probated, there was no mention of Eva uh, at all. And if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, Eva had an attorney, uh, you know, basically tell her, it doesn't matter if you're named in it or not. You're his wife. You're entitled to a third of everything that he has. And he was worth, um, he wasn't exactly a robber baron, but his worth was in the, you know, millions um, uh, at the time. And so uh, Eva contested the will, saying basically I'm his wife and uh, I'm due uh, my share of the money. And the Hamilton family wanted her to have basically not one penny um, for all of the grief that she had caused all of them. So uh, that is the civil action um, that played out in court. And it ended up going to being appealed to the New York State Supreme Court. And even after the Supreme Court had ruled with uh, the Hamilton family, Eve all of a sudden concocted um, you know, she found, quote, found a document where Ray had promised to give her money. It was obviously a counterfeit or a forged document. The family said, we've really had enough of this and offered her $10,000 and said, if you take this, 
just go away and you never mention the Hamilton name again. And she did. So she left. And, you know, what Ray did leave in his will, other than, you know, the property to his brother and his his brother's children and things like that, is he left $10,000 to the city of New York to build the Hamilton Fountain, which I spoke about at the very beginning of our conversation. And the family said to the city, you can keep the money. We don't want a penny of it. Do with it whatever you want. Whatever you do, please don't build a fountain in Ray's name. We don't want the Hamilton name attached to something with this story behind it. And they even went to the press and kind of allowed themselves to be interviewed about it. The New York Times ran a headline, Let Him Be Forgotten, uh, where uh, Ray's father and and members of the Schuyler family are quoted as saying, you know, basically Ray brought dishonor to the family name. And, you know, we are strongly opposed to the city building this fountain, um, this thing called the Hamilton Fountain. So, the city came back to say that, unfortunately, there was nothing they could do about it. They had to take the request. And this was kind of still in the courts in 1891 to 1894. Ray's father was getting quite old uh, and infirm by that point. But the city never found a site for it. They just really slow walked the whole project, basically in deference to the Hamilton family and to Ray's father. Ray's father died in March of 1904, and in April of 1904, one month later, the city announced that they had located a site uh, to build the fountain. And they chose this site at 76 and Riverside Park. A lot of the kind of the old, even though Central Park had opened and new mansions were being built uptown kind of uh, along Central Park, primarily on the east side still at that point. But the kind of old money of New York, the old sort of Hamilton kind of money, still resided around Gramercy Park and Madison Square Park down in the kind of 20s, so some on, on the east side of Manhattan. So for something to be located sort of 60 blocks north on the far west side of Manhattan, it minimized the chances of sort of Hamilton's walking past it out for a stroll. So the fountain was built and, and opened in 1906 with virtually no fanfare. Uh, fountains were a nice philanthropic thing that rich people gave to the city. Uh, and they were Their openings were usually accompanied by, uh, you know, ribbon cuttings and dignitaries making remarks. And there'd be at least some kind of mention it in the newspaper. And in this case, there was nothing. The one line in the Parks Department annual report from 1906 saying a fountain is opened at 76th Street, and that was it. So, so that's really the story of, of how the fountain came about. Awesome. So you have a website. Can you tell us about it? Sure. My website is uh, Uh You can find me on Twitter. Uh, at Bill Schaefer, B-I-L-S-H-A-F-F-E-R. There's only one L in Bill on my Twitter feed. And at Facebook at Bill Schaefer Books. So if any of your listeners have any questions, they can reach out to me through any of those platforms, and I'd be happy to hear from them. Well, well really fun talking to you. Uh, thank you again.
Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate you um, um, having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled. Once more, I have been speaking to Bill Schaefer, author of The Scandalous Hamiltons, A Gilded Grifter, A Founding Father's Disgraced Descendant, and A Trial at the Dawn of Tabloid Journalism. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.